to the Bloke and the Bird show. This week, you know, coming from you, coming to you from that kind of dead part of the winter. Although dead? I say that, this it's week... February. Well, no, because February you have testing. And no. some of the cars start showing up. Um, the reality is this week isn't really all that dead because you've got, the, well, just wrapped up... Uh, as we record Sunday, the Autosport International show over in London, um, which attracts a lot of folks from in and around and adjacent to Formula One. Um, and they have up on their stage all kinds of interviews and insight from um, all kinds of folks on where Formula One has been in the last year, where it's going, what the teams are planning on doing, all of that stuff. Um, there was not last year, but I think it was the year before, the full Williams Hospitality trailer oh, yeah. was set up. Yes, you mentioned that. That Felipe Massa made an appearance and was making drinks for um, selected press members oh. on the roof of the Williams Hospitality trailer. So you had to not just get press creds, <clears throat> but you had to get special press creds to have drinks made by Massa. Something like that. Um, Williams is, and, and I didn't see much from them this year, but Williams has always had a pretty close relationship with the Autosport show. I think it was last year that there was a replica of the original, uh, Frank Williams' original garage that they built on the the show floor. You know, um, I'm probably jumping ahead because one of the things on our trip that we saw was the Williams movie. Yeah, you are jumping ahead. I figured we'd do that towards the end. Oh, okay. I just figured with the garage, it made like a perfect segue. I know, it did kind of make sense, but let's talk about other stuff, and then we'll get to the, the Williams movie. All right, stay tuned, and we will talk about the Williams movie later, if we remember. So also looking forward to this year, we have the return of the French Grand Prix at the Circuit Paul Ricard. You know, that Lewis, Lewis doesn't hates. like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, you know, I, I did a little research, a little bit of internet research, not a lot, just a little bit of internet research on the circuit to see where it was and what it looked like and things like that. And the thing that struck me in my Google Maps view uh, or Google Earth view of the circuit is that there didn't seem to be a whole lot of grandstands and viewing areas around the circuit. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and those that was there didn't look all that wonderful. Well, it turns out that for this, among many other reasons, attendance is just limited to 60000 a day at the circuit. That's really low. It is. It's extremely low. Not, or excuse me, 65000 not 60000 but it's oh, still well, super 5, low. Oh, well, 5000 makes all the difference. Yeah, I know. I mean, when, when you think about um, Austin in a country that doesn't really like Formula One can bring in one hundred and ten to 120000 a day. It's kind of stunning, but there's also concerns about the overall infrastructure around the track. You mean like the roads? Yes, okay. um, because like many tracks, Paul Ricard is in a fairly rural area. Okay. Fairly, very, very, very rural area. Uh, so they're trying to figure out what they can do to ease the traffic concerns there because they don't want people sitting in traffic for two days to get out of the place. Um, they've got a bunch of plans. They've been doing some testing through the last year. Uh, there are some events that are of similar size 
at Paul Ricard, although they tend to be motorcycle events. So they're like, most of these folks show up on motorcycles, so it's easier to move them in and out because you can get more motorcycles on the road than cars. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're looking at, uh, they want to implement a circular road around the circuit that will be a one-way road to direct traffic and ease the spread to parking lots. There's also talk, I guess there's some roads that they don't normally open in and around the circuit that they're looking to try and reopen to ease the traffic pressure in the area. Wow. So roads that are not normally open, you can only imagine what kind of condition those roads might be in. Well, it's either that or where those roads might go. Uh, we're we're going to deal with the cars. We're going to send them down this road that ends at a cliff. Yeah. That's <laughs> traffic one, done. <laughs> one way to handle that. It's, you know, because it's a rural area, there's probably some farmland that is around it. So you got to figure that we're going to go through Jean Paul's farm. Um, and uh, we'll just route people to park, you know, in the greenery. Well, yeah, that may be some of it. But also, think to, like, mid-Ohio. When we go to mid-Ohio, again, a track that's out in the boonies, uh, and the only access to it is a pair of two-lane roads. Correct. That the county sheriff basically goes, and they use as the divider the main exit of the track, of they set up the contraflow of turn left, and it's now two lanes in one direction there's no oncoming traffic to get out that direction turn right it's two lanes in the other direction yeah all roads point out yeah period and i don't know exactly where they hold they make it so that there is no inbound traffic when the race is over well they they do one is in town Mm -hmm. um, where we turn to get down onto the track they just don't let anybody which has got a kind of stink for the residential folks who, who are on you know, relying on that side street for a couple hours. Yeah. And then when we always come out, we go the opposite direction. And when we make our turn off of that road, there's a cop there who, who's making sure that it remains one way and nobody comes back. Right. So I mean, there are the funniest part about it is that there are actual houses on that road that has now been turned into a one way street. And I'm guessing that they get, you know, they realize that, you know, every so often. Yeah. The road's going to get shut down, and you're not going to have access for a couple of hours. You could yeah. leave, but you can't come back. A couple hours a day, you're just going to have to go and pack supplies. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we'll see what they do with that and, and what the reviews are of their efforts. I, I'm really kind of curious to see what – Not, I mean, yes, I'm, I'm curious as to what the race is going to look like because the layout doesn't look all that great, but I'm very interested in what the fan response to that particular track is. Remember, this is the track that Bernie's family owns. Well, I was about to say, since Bernie's family owns this track, and he's so committed to the fan experience, (laughs) I'm sure that he will be willing to pour whatever money is required into making it a fan experience uh, to rival anything, you know, to be the best fan experience possible. Sure he is. You don't think Bernie's that committed or committable? Possibly th- institutionalized. I think that the, whether and, – and I don't know whether or not Bernie is part or, or how deeply Bernie's involved with the organizers, just they own the track. But I would best – I would guess that the main desire would be to extract as much cash from the visitors' pockets as possible. First and foremost. Oh. 
because that's the way he works. So, you know, that would mean that he might be willing to put some money into some places that would be upgraded experiences to extract more cash. Like maybe toll roads coming into the, the track. That I could see. Yeah. You know, you want actual access to be able to use your ticket? You need to pay me. So further discussions of what's going on. Pat Simmons this past week, and Pat Simmons, if you don't remember, formerly um, one of the big wigs over at Williams, I think he was like head of engineering before he retired to become a pundit mm-hmm. uh, working for, for Sky Sports. Um, he's actually still keeping his hands involved with Formula One Group and with Formula One. This past week, he was speaking at MIA's Entertainment and Energy Efficient Motorsports Conference. No, I haven't heard of it either. But he was speaking there. Well, it's an MIA, so they're missing an action motorsports conference. Oh, is that what it was? That's why you've never heard of it. Ah. Um, Apparently, he is working with Formula One Group to evaluate new change or or evaluate changes to the grid formation process now what we don't know is this you know the reverse grids and things like that or is this the processes around um you know where we see the grid walk and and the dummy grid and those pieces we don't know Mm -hmm. but he does say that they're doing some virtual environments to test these regulations That way they can gather some statistics, uh, get a chance to look at things you can't otherwise simulate in an easy manner. He says, I'll give you an example of something we've been thinking about this year. For a number of years, the starting grid for F1 has been a staggered formation. Um, We know one of the problems is that we put the fastest car in a grid, and not only do we do that, but we separate them. So if you think about it, when you watch the videos and, and, and you see that lineup, you've got the pole position car in front, and then, yes, it's next to him, but back slightly is the next car Mm -hmm. and it works like that all the way through he says it used to not be like that there was a time when cars started to abreast there was a time when we've got a photo in our boardroom in london where i think it's monza there are four cars on the front row what would happen if we did that again it's not the sort of thing you can simulate easy we can go to our esports group and we can say, look, guys, let's change the grid. Let's do 20 races. They don't have to be 300-kilometer races. We're only interested in the first three laps. Then we see what happens. Are we going to get a much more exciting first lap or are we going to get a huge collision on corner one? By doing this and looking at it statistically, we can start to understand these things. It gives us our evidence-based form of decision-making, a mantra I preach quite regularly. He goes on. Some might remember that a couple of years ago, someone who was no longer involved in F1 decided it would be a good idea to change the qualifying procedure, and at a whim, that was done. There was no simulation of it whatsoever. A few people with an IQ that ran into double figures did look at it and decided it was going to be a disaster. And sure enough, it was a disaster. But nonetheless, it went ahead, and sure enough, it was a disaster. How do things like that happen? We can't let it happen again. (laughs) Ouch. Wow. Really, that was more interesting to me than the rest of the story. Ooh. Channeling my inner that 70s show, I'm required to go burn. 
the IQ that ran into the double digits. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> um, I, I think that we may need to pull that quote out and like tape it to the board of great quotes. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's interesting that they are trying to use some actual evidence-based planning to see if there's changes that would make things different and exciting and actually test something before we go, hey, let's just do this thing. Yeah. Now, we were watching, it's been a Formula One motorsport uh TV viewing in our household Mm -hmm. recently, but we were watching One, the Grand Prix movie. Yeah, that's the the actual name of the movie is One, and you can find it over on Amazon Prime Videos. Highly recommend it. Um, I've watched the whole thing now. Oh, did you? I I caught up um, yesterday. Well, we won't get into a deep review of it. No, but I want to- for a later show. I want to comment about the the multiple abreast one Mm -hmm. of the things that i noticed which was stunning because there's so much old footage in this movie yeah um is the three abreast start lineups um they were crazy Mm -hmm. it was pretty crazy but they've done the staggered start for a significant period of time so it'll be interesting to see i don't think anybody in our current crop of well, I can tell you, none of the people in our current crop of racers have probably ever done a start that wasn't staggered. And therefore, it's going to be a learning curve for them, too. So I bet they, I hope they put that in their simulation because that's something else to think about. When they change the start regulations about finding the bite points on clutches, our racers hadn't done that before. And it yeah. caused some hiccups in the starts. So, Well, you, you got to assume that if they decide to change to whether it's you know that they're lined up two abreast or they're three or four or whatever that once that decision is made the teams are going to be plugging that into their simulators and they're going to have the drivers work through it on their own simulators to sort that out and predict that oh i mean one would very much hope that that's the plan sauber won't (laughs) <laughs> because I don't think they afford they can afford a simulator. No, but... they they can afford the PlayStation Four. <laughs> Are you sure? That's I mean, part... it's like five hundred whole dollars. That's the technical partnership with Alfa Romeo. Oh, they got themselves <laughs> a PlayStation Four. Um, I mean, they, they, we got to be careful. They're they're pinching pennies. So, but just remember, you don't have Manisha Keltenborn to kick around anymore. But I can still kick around Sauber as a okay. company. They're still the bottom of the grid, only because McLaren got slightly more points than them. But anyway, <laughs> I, it, it's an interesting thought. I still love the idea of we're not going to go into this all willy nilly because we have double digit IQs. <sighs> yeah, more than double digit IQs. No, IQs that made it into the double digits is yeah. what it said. We have double digits. You know, keep in mind, 10 is a double digit. <laughs> <laughs> I want people making decisions that have triple digit IQs. Uh, let's get into that group. Well, one of the things that we know is in the plans for Formula One group is new tracks and new races or return to some other classic tracks so yeah we heard the rumblings last week that Nürburgring may be coming but this past week leadership from Formula One group and Liberty Media were in Copenhagen to uh, 
move forward preliminary talks that have been ongoing for a race in Copenhagen. Uh, the idea would be a route that is similar in nature to Baku. Through downtown, street race, past some of Copenhagen's um, historic sites and points of interest within Copenhagen. Now, whether that means they're going to go past the Little Mermaid statue, I don't know. I would doubt it because you can't really see that. But <laughs> there, there would be other things, maybe some castles and stuff like that. You know, Little Mermaid statue, that was one of the questions in the pub trivia that we won. I'm just saying yeah. we won a instance of pub trivia. Yeah. Um, should plans be approved, officials in Denmark hope to have the race on the calendar for 2020. So we'll see what happens with that. So I was bothered by this next story. I was mainly bothered by this next story because of the headline to it. Because as I read the story and, and looked at it, I'm like, okay, yeah, it, it, it's fine that they're doing this. It's not a big deal. But the focus isn't NASCAR and NASCAR struggles. So what the headline was is – and it wasn't just Autosport that did this and, and Motorsport, which basically they, they published the same stuff. Several other outlets did this too. Ran a story with the headline along the lines of F1 plans new merchandise route for 2018 that flopped in NASCAR. Or F1 tries new merchandise route that failed for NASCAR, something along those lines. Everybody did this. Okay. So what Formula One is looking to do is actually let, let's go back even further than that. What NASCAR has done. And they, and they started this back in 2015. They, they had a 10-year agreement with merchandise experts Fanatics. Um, this is the same group that's going to be involved in uh, the Formula One project to streamline the sales of trackside souvenir products. Now, stay with me here and let me know if you have experienced anything like this. And this is why you'll see why the headline bothered me. So... What F1 has done up until now, and, and NASCAR did up until 2015, is scattered throughout the track and scattered throughout the event were individual tents that sold merchandise primarily focused on specific drivers. Okay. So if you wanted the Pascal Verline driver, you had to go find the tent in the far reaches but if you wanted the Lewis Hamilton driver, he was probably close to the pack. Well, I don't know about where it was, but basically you looked for their big giant picture, and that was the tent that had their stuff. Okay. And they might idea. even be gathered in, in a general court. They might be over in, like, the fan village or something like that. Not like, you know, all the way out at turn 18 is Pascal Verline, but turn 2 is the Lewis Hamilton. It, it may not necessarily have been like And I don't think it was. I think they were all gathered around the fan village. That's kind of a cool idea. You know, I'm a so-and-so fan. I'm going to go mm -hmm. to their tent. I mean, that makes sense. And, and NASCAR did something very similar up until 2015, where the idea that they put in place was a superstore tent that provided a centralized point of purchase for all team and driver merchandise. Huh. There you go. Very similar. I mean, actually, absolutely identical to the IndyCar experience. But while the idea seemed great on paper for NASCAR, NASCAR reverted to the traditional trailers that had previously proved popular in the middle of 2017. 
and everybody is hung up on the fact that NASCAR tried this and it didn't work, but IndyCar's been doing it. Nobody mentions that IndyCar does this. Nobody. Interesting. Yeah. So what Sean Bratches had to say, he said, we have engaged Fanatics, which is the market leader in this space and has a lot of knowledge in terms of sporting events and how product is merchandised and sold. Next year, we will have a massive tent experience. You will be able to pick items up off a rack and see if it fits, then go into a queue with 15 to 20 registers. And if you want to send it home, our partner DHL will be there to take care of it with you, basically by flinging it and seeing if it actually makes it to your home. You know, he didn't say that part, but that's our experience with DHL. They don't DHL actually ship anything; they punt it. Slow down yeah. in front of houses and throw it out the back of the car. They, they don't actually ship anything; they just punt it and see where now, it goes. Now, in their defense, after many complainings from our household, the last time DHL delivered anything to our house, they actually pulled into our driveway five feet and hey. did not flank. They didn't fling. They actually walked it up. So if they didn't, considering that UPS and FedEx don't pull into the driveway at all, they just walk it up. I'm okay with them pulling partway into the driveway. It doesn't bother me. No. Just the fact that he didn't punt it from the curb. <laughs> anyway. So Sean Bratches then went on to say that uh, they anticipate that the tent will sell not just team and driver souvenirs, but also official F1 items with, with that Great New logo. fabulous logo. <laughs> and also items from each individual Grand Prix. We think it is an experience that fans believe in and they are looking for. We've done a lot of research at each Grand Prix that supports this. If you look at NASCAR in terms of the apportionment of sales in their property, you have about 5% of content that is NASCAR driven. You've got about 30% of content that is I was there, like a Daytona top. And the 65% balance is either team or driver merchandise. With our F1 brand, we can probably fight above those percentages, but team and driver merchandise will still be predominant. We want to give them a better platform to market their brands and their merchandise and generate incremental revenues. Okay, so here's the thing. I don't know why it didn't work for NASCAR. I don't. Yeah. And no part of that article is telling me, what failed at NASCAR that F1 is now trying to replicate? And, and quite honestly, I didn't care enough about NASCAR to go look it up to, to see if anybody had talked about it. <laughs> I mean, it could be anything from the fact that they, when they went to a superstore model, they didn't build it big enough. I mean, think about some of the rabidness of the fan base for some of the drivers. Mm -hmm. They may have had whole, like, think about it. If the trucks experience were like semi-trucks, for uh, somebody that I don't know his name of off the top of my head, some big name NASCAR driver. And they put like two semi trunks and we're supposed to try to come over all the NASCAR drivers. You don't have enough space. That, I mean, they could have failed in space allocation. They could have failed in merchandising. They could have failed in a lot of different places that this has an issue. I'll throw one other thing out there. Because, and it was a separate article that I had read, and, and again, if I cared enough, I would have remembered the drivers other than like Danica Patrick and, and somebody else. But it had mentioned the fact that NASCAR right now is at a major crossroads. Mm -hmm. Because 
this year they lost something like 50 they saw something like 15% decline in TV viewership and the previous year was something like a 30% decline in TV viewership they're losing like three or four big name stars this year that are leaving the sport entirely so and and, and at the same time that this is going on and, and admittedly they're smaller bases but NBC and ABC saw an increase in viewership in IndyCar, and NBC saw an increase in viewership in Formula One, both in the double digits. Hey, nice. So could also some of the reason why this idea failed wasn't so much because the concept was bad, but because NASCAR as a whole is struggling. Uh, that's also a possibility. A smart retailer hopefully is looking at percent of sales on at single venues and mm-hmm. not trying to look across the whole thing but back to my whole point was they could have screwed it up in a hundred different ways i think mr eyebrows is a very <laughs> bright marketer he's not impressed me as being dumb um and fanatics by the way a company i know i've i've worked near them um <laughs> Adjacent? Adjacent. I've been (laughs) fanatics adjacent. Um, They're really smart, too. Mm -hmm. And um, they're doing some really cool, smart stuff, just by the way. Um, But the IndyCar experience... Now, I will say this. One of the things that I've noticed in that IndyCar tent with the Superstore model, and I figured it was a a mid-Ohio thing just from space and how how many fans they really bring in, the merchandise is fairly limited. You've got maybe one to two t-shirts per driver um you don't have a whole lot of stuff per driver now the the minifigs were awesome but well there there was that the other thing that kind of struck me is that yes there there were limited select but at least every driver every driver's represented and and what the, the two things that struck me was that not only was every driver represented but some of the drivers that do not drive the entire season were represented. There were drivers that only drive in two or three races or just in Indianapolis that they were represented. Pippa Man is one that comes to mind because her shirts tend to stand out. Well, they're pink. Yes, and some of them are sparkly too. But That was in the four-facing women's section. It that was. was in the, the it, tent. It, it was. But... Um, between that and also the amount of stuff, and and I get that Indianapolis, the Indianapolis 500 is a is the the big flagship event for IndyCar, but the fact that we were at Mid Ohio and there was Indianapolis 500 merchandise seemed a little odd to me. I do think that's a little odd. Now I don't mind the fact that there were some T-shirts that were I think it was the hundredth year running of yeah, the five hundred. So it was a hundred years of racing and that kind of thing. That didn't bother me so much, but there was still Mid Ohio stuff. Now what I did notice no, is the Mid Ohio stuff is not in the main tent. That's what Mid Ohio is selling the Mid Ohio. That's stuff. what I was going to point out is that IndyCar does not sell merchandise for Mid Ohio. Mid Ohio sells merchandise for Mid Ohio at their own merchandise booths that are there throughout the year. It's right. just depending on the event is whether or not they're open. Um, but the, there are some advantages that Sean did mention. To be able to get into a queue where there's a lot of registers to yes. move the line along, good. You may have 15 registers if you had individual tents, but 
Lewis's tent is going to be a whole lot busier than Pascal Verlein's tent. You know, the queue should be shorter in Verlein's tent. Well, it, granted, the, the IndyCar tent, and, and I don't know what they do over at, like, the Indianapolis 500, where there's a much bigger crowd. The tent that is at Mid-Ohio isn't that big, I and mean, they're only talking two or three registers, and it gets crowded kind of mm-hmm. kind of quickly. If Formula One does something that's about three times the size of that, that's a fairly large footprint. Well, and you don't have to do it in one store. You could spread a, a, yeah. around the track a little bit and have you know multiple versions of that. Well, what, assuming that Fanatic, and it wouldn't surprise me if Fanatics is doing the IndyCar one too. Assuming that they follow a similar model to what IndyCar does, it's going to be one big superstore tent and then three or four significantly smaller satellite tents scattered around so that you can get, you know, really small stuff. and, and the Super, the, the super headline, popular Yeah, things. super popular stuff, the headline drivers and maybe some keychains and other little trinkets. Um, but, you know, not even a quarter of the size of what is the big main tent. Yeah. Those were like the size of a standard easy up tent is what yeah, those were. Yeah, that's, that's probably the best way to describe that. Um, but it works. I mean, it, it does actually, it's a workable solution. Um, I, I, again, there's no, no telling why NASCAR changed the plan. It, there's no telling what they were, what their struggles were. I think that Formula One needs to try to figure out their own problems. And just because it failed in another sport doesn't necessarily mean, and I don't even know if it failed. That's the other piece of this. They just ditched it. Because they ditched it doesn't necessarily mean it failed. Somebody that was high up enough could have said, I don't like this superstore idea because we can't get deep enough in the merchandise for a specific driver. Or the drivers could have revolted because they get kickbacks on this merchandise. You know, I I would bet you it's not a pricing thing. But could it possibly be that with – there being ovals, a lot of ovals within NASCAR, that where they found was that they could not place the the big superstore tent in a location at many of these tracks that had the traffic and and were not particularly accessible. Because, it, you know, maybe it was, I don't know what it's like, say, over at Daytona, but maybe it was a long hike from those massive grandstands into the infield where maybe they set up that big tent or they set it up on one, the big tent on one side of the track. So you had half the track that was like, well, I'm not going all the way over there. It's a three-mile hike, and I don't want to do that. Or I'm going to miss the race to go to the souvenir right. shop. And, you know, if they tried to put it in the infield, keep in mind, that's where they do a lot of the camper stuff, mm-hmm. and there's like a whole society on the infield thing mm-hmm. for NASCAR. I mean, there could have been a hundred other reasons other than it failed. And I think that that's, that's poor jur- – that's lazy journalism is what that is. But the, the one thing that we have not heard in this plan – and I don't think that – honestly, I don't think Formula One's merchandise weakness is – the merchandising, and and the offerings that they have. Formula One's weakness, and we've said this before, is the cost of that merchandise. And the fact that, again, we're going to use that IndyCar comparison, the fact that we can walk into the IndyCar tent and we can plop down 
100 to 125 bucks, and each one of us gets a t-shirt plus a trinket and maybe, um, you know, two minifigs. I totally got two mini. I got one minifig and two cars. And two cars. And we could have each gotten t-shirts too for 100 to 125 bucks, where by comparison, you walk into the Formula One store and for that same $125, you might get a shirt and a car. I don't even know if you'd get that much. I it, mean, depend, it depends, it depends on, on the, the team car. and it depends <laughs> on the brand and it depends on the type of shirt. Yeah. But to turn around and to get hit even for a t-shirt, not even a polo shirt, but a t-shirt, and for that to carry an 80 to $90 price tag for a t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of nice to see like $30 tees mm-hmm. at the IndyCar stand and, you know, $50 sweatshirts. I mean, yes, it's still expensive, but there's a premium on that type of thing. But but $50 for a sweatshirt or even 45 or $50 for a polo shirt. If you're traveling and you go to to some of the tourist sites and you, you know, like whether it's Disney or whether it's, you know, Alaska or something like that, those numbers aren't out of line with what they charge as opposed to what formula one is which is then there's a premium tacked on top of the premium yeah it's the the formula one premium on the premium price yeah and and i don't begrudge the formula one wanting to turn a profit on the merchandise sales but i don't think the price points are realistic about it i've already paid a premium for the ticket Mm mm-hmm um, I've already paid a premium for everything else that has gotten me to this point. Mm-hmm. Before I stand in your souvenir stand, I have paid premium prices all the way along. And every person, I don't care how much money you make, every person has a budget. Yeah. Unless right. you're Bernie Eccleston. No, I think even he has to have a budget of some sort. We won't debate that now. So, other future plans. Yes. Other things. You know, the halo is the big question. What are they going to do with the halo? What's it going to look like? How are teams going to integrate that? What can they leverage off of it? We've already heard talk of the probability of cameras mounted in, on, and around the halo. And I I think there's some potential there, especially if you want to have the, the cockpit and driver's eye view of the track because... The previous camera angles are now obstructed by the halo. Right. I wonder if they'll turn that camera around so you could get, like, a view of the driver's eyes or something. Well, That'll be interesting. That, remember, that camera view exists. There is, and, and you can see the camera now. It's that little bump that is in front of the driver at the front of the cockpit. Um, that's a high-speed camera that the FIA uses to monitor the driver. And before anybody gets any woo creepy kind of stuff, it's actually specifically used um, in analysis of the crash and determining what happened to the driver's body and the driver's head and to help analyze the impact of the crash and the effect of the crash on the driver on the spot as the medical car is headed out there. Well, It's actually a really cool function that they're doing with it. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it does help to determine could they be concussed or not mm-hmm. concussed or, you know, or Fernando Alonso. <laughs> oh, wow. Ron Dennis is not around anymore. 
<laughs> Doesn't mean I have forgiven the he is concussed, he's not concussed debacle. Well, they're looking at some experimental solutions to maximize the extra space created by the Halo's introduction. So, yes, they floated out the cameras idea. They floated out possibly some potential for putting some advertising on there. However, there's limitations as to the what and how the teams can, can paint and color the halo. Oh. So I, I don't think it'll necessarily stick out as the black thing that we've seen in the past, but there apparently there are some limitations of it. Somebody, actually it was Zach Brown, and you think of all people who I would think would be smarter than this. Um, Zach Brown floated out that, well, you know, maybe we could install a digital ticker a digital to scroll. Tick. <laughs> yeah. Scrolling. Scrolling's not going to work at 300 kilometers per hour. Yeah, especially given the size of the halo. I mean, you, again, going back to IndyCar, and you look at their digital display, and that's kind of hard to read on those cars, and that's pretty big. Well, and it's pretty big, and it reads beautifully. It's on the side first. Yeah. Um, it reads beautifully on the TV where they're panning with the car. Yes. It's on the track when you're sitting trackside. It's like, what was that? No, I have no idea. Yeah. yeah you have to pan with it to register what that digital display is. Now, I think that digital display is cool as all get out, but... Now, I personally think that they should the team should leverage the halo to write the name of the driver. And here's my theory. Because it takes it off the side of the car where, you know, how they're required to have the name of the driver and the number and stuff. Leverage the halo for I that would, kind of thing. I would bet you it's not big enough. No. Change that rule. Because, I mean, it's not the highly useful space because you're only going to really see something head on and we don't get many shots of the cars head on while moving well we we do see their sides too and and there is a side component to the halo um now the restrictions on the painting are that the inside of the halo cannot be painted mm. the concern is that they don't want it to distract the drivers so i don't know what color that's going to look like interesting or is it just that it has to be a single color i don't know Mm. Not clear on that. Yeah, but how how bad of a driver are you if you are distracted by colors? Well, I mean, think about it. You drive a car every day. It has a colored interior, a color of an interior. I drive a car that has flashing lights on the inside too, but exactly. After like the first day or so, those flashing lights didn't distract you anymore. True. Now, when I drive your car, those flashing lights distract me because I don't drive it every day. But if I was a Formula One driver and drove a car, colors shouldn't distract me after like the first five minutes, right? I would think so. Like it should become, it should blend into the background. Maybe it's not the veterans they're concerned about. It's the young drivers. You mean like Lance Stroll? Yes. Because <laughs> he's easily distracted by something shiny? Yes. I mean, I think that they're more worried that they could use a ticker system to, like, put messages to the driver on the... And maybe that's what he's thinking. And maybe it's he's not thinking it's for the fans. But then again, you've got the display screen on, sure. the, on the steering wheels or on the dash right in front of the steering wheel. You've got that. And Mercedes has used that in the past 
They did it for Lewis's first world championship where they flashed up a picture of him in his cart <laughs> after he won that. True. So. True. All right. No ticker. No ticker. We Bloke and the bird stand against the ticker. Yeah, I agree with that. That's just a dumb idea. Um, Zach also did a guest post over on James Allen on F1's blog, on James Allen's blog. Uh, most of it I, I wasn't particularly thrilled with. I didn't think it was all that notable. But he did comment that before Christmas, Sean Bratches presented the new F1 commercial strategy to the teams. Now, what Zach is willing to release now, we'll have to wait for more information from uh, Formula One group. He says, there is a huge emphasis on digital, as we know, but last year was about testing things out. For this year, there are products in place like a new F1 app, over-the-top streaming uh, platforms, and they have brought in David Hill, one of the great TV sports innovators, to oversee the graphics package and the way the race is televised. You'll see significant changes there on the broadcast, on the graphics, and the storytelling. Then, on event, we'll see more fan engagement. Building on last year, and there will be new media properties to help fans get closer to the teams. I think the big impacts of 2018 will be on the media side, showing F1 in a way that it's never been seen before. It will give us a younger and bigger audience, and they will be more engaged. I think we will see new race announcements for 2019 and beyond, one or two new hosting venues, which excites me. Cool. So given what little we know about ESPN's plans for Formula One broadcasts in the U.S., I really want to know what this is going to shape up to be. And in particular, yeah, we expected them to do more when it came to streaming, but does that mean we're going to be able to time shift? Yeah, oh, true. And get the good coverage. Time shift would be very, very cool. So the last thing that Zach shared, and this was not he on. He was really in a sharing mood this week, wasn't he? He was, and and some of that is there was a lot of stuff going on, and again, Autosport Show has a lot to do with it. Uh, folks, we're, we're definitely commenting on a variety of stuff going on. Uh, it was talking about uh, plans for next year and the team. So what he says is the car's not going to look the same as last year. Our whole brand, the visibility of McLaren, is going to go to the next level. And More orange. And it's going to be exciting. More orange. He says, we know what a lot of the other teams are going to look like, but hopefully people will see the biggest change on and off the track at McLaren going into Australia. One of the things that McLaren hasn't done in recent years is to be a leader. With our garage and everything, we look like everyone else. So we need to step up and be the guys in Australia where everyone says, did you see what McLaren did? That is what McLaren always was. With our lack of competitiveness, we have kind of blended in. We need to get back to being a team that people are envious of. I feel we are on our way. So he was specifically asked about the papyra orange color that is on the cars. He says, there will be some nod to our history, but we're not done with the livery yet because a lot of that is sponsor dependent. Um, he Wait, does. they're going to have sponsors? He, he says that they have signed three. They're not going to have, as we mentioned, a title sponsor, but they have signed about three new sponsors 
but they have not announced who they are yet. Okay, secret sponsors. Uh, well, for right now, we'll. See. I mean, you got to assume it's coming. They have to show it off when they at least show out, show off how orange the car will be. Yeah. Well, we talked, and again, we mentioned James Allen last year. And it was probably just over a year ago that we saw a quick note on James Allen's blog that Amazon was following the McLaren team for a documentary that at the time we thought was going to be released later in the year. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got a more information on the documentary and a release date. Um, the documentary will be called Grand Prix Driver. looks to be about four episodes, primarily focused on um, preseason. There may be a little bit for Australia, but primarily on preseason and followed the team inside access to the team as the car was released and McLaren realized the pile of crap that Honda was giving them. Oh. Yes. That sounds exciting. So it could be very interesting. Uh, release date for Grand Prix Driver will be February 9th. However, if you are an Amazon Prime subscriber, you can go into Prime Video now and view the trailer for the, the series. We'll get right on that. So, like I said, we've been watching a lot of uh, racing coverage. Also in Amazon Prime is Le Mans. Yeah, Amazon's got, what is it, six-episode series, and I think we talked about it a while ago, um, on Le Mans and featuring Mark Webber's first year in WEC with the Porsche team and that run. But that was, it was the 2015 it's either 15 or 16, 16 run because it was also the year that Nico Hulkenberg was on one of the Porsche teams. Yeah, I haven't seen him get mentioned yet. Oh, he will. Okay. Um, it's coming. There happens to be, and, and I don't want to get too deep into it there, there is a lot of motorsport-related movies and shows on Amazon Prime. Yes, uh, also available on Amazon Prime. We've talked about it before in the past. You haven't seen it. Uh, the BBC show uh, Formula One, The Deadly Years. Mm -hmm. uh, the Deadliest Crash is on there, which is about a major, major crash that killed something like 50 spectators at Le Mans back in the 60s. Um, there is the special that BBC did on the Paris-Dakar rally and... The, the deadly years in WRC, all of that is on there. They have also happen to have um, a special that last year NBC Sports had on their schedule, but we never actually found it. Um, a story about the Homatro safety team in IndyCar called Yellow, Yellow, Yellow. Yes, we haven't seen it yet, but we're really excited about it. Yeah. <laughs> I met them. Yes, you did. I, I have a selfie with the Hamacho safety team. They were really excited to get to be part of somebody's selfie. Which, did you know that on, on all of their trucks, it's a four-man team, every single person on that truck is a trained firefighter and paramedic. That doesn't surprise me, but that's it, awesome. It's not surprising, but... But that's awesome. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, they're really the great com- group of guys. They were a lot of fun. Like I said, I don't think that many people come over and say, hey, we really like you. And, you know, you're my son's favorite part of this sport. So can <laughs> I get a selfie with you? Um, they were really impressed by that. So moving on, Pascal Verlein. Poor Pascal. Pasca- poor Pascal Verlein. The, the man who was seen, the driver who was seen as the next great hope for Mercedes to, to step up and be Mercedes' next superstar after Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton, who doesn't have a drive. Mm-hmm. Not only doesn't have a drive, but now he's got two other prodigies in the Mercedes system that are nipping at his heels, including o Esteban Ocon, who came in and lit the world on fire. Exactly. He just kind of fizzled. Yeah. Well, Toto Wolf says that Pascal definitely deserves a place in Formula One and is certainly one of the fastest drivers. At the moment, it looks a little bit bitter as far as the available race seats are concerned, but he's definitely going to be on our team. Whether or not he actively participates in a racing series other than F- F1 is unclear. He will definitely remain part of our squad. In other words, we don't know what we're going to do with him at this point. I fear he's going to get relegated to that awful backseat position of like backup testing. driver, replacement driver, or testing and development driver. Test which, and development driver for the simulator. Which they never come out of that position. It's kind of like he's a great guy. Well, speaking of test and development driver on the simulator, Daniel Kvyat has joined Ferrari as their test and development driver for the simulator. Really? (laughs) He got a job? He did. And just to give you an idea of of how much the press has soured on Mr. Kvyat, the BBC. Now, admittedly, they, they are... Known for their fanboyism for the British drivers, and in particular Lewis Hamilton. Mm -hmm. But the BBC's headline for this, from chief F1 writer Andrew Benson, was Daniel Kvyat, Red Bull reject joins Ferrari as development driver. (laughs) The BBC is putting Daniel Kvyat down as they're announcing news about him. Aye. I don't even think they used to do that to Pastor Maldonado. Well, no, but the thing is... Um, keep in mind, it's also a massive smack to Ferrari. Oh, it is. Because you're taking an F, a Red Bull, a third place team's reject? Well, let's also just be clear about it. And, and, and a couple of things. First, Ferrari is known to have a fairly large stable of test and development drivers in addition to the young drivers in their pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, Ferrari freely admits that there is no plans whatsoever for Daniel to drive a car on a track. Ever. At all. Yeah. Um, and yes, should there be an issue with one of the existing drivers, whether that's Seb or Kimmy, the expectation at this point is that the person to get the call up is going to be Charles Leclerc, who again came up through the Ferrari uh, series and you know, he's driving for Sauber this year. Right. So maybe what could potentially happen, potentially, is that should, say, somebody get a stomach bug or just somebody have an oddball crash and there's a need for 
the reserve driver to step in, that Leclerc steps in at Ferrari, because there's rumors, and I don't think that these are these are accurate, but the, the rumors are that the leading candidate to replace Kimi at this point, assuming he is actually gone this year, but the leading candidate to replace Kimi this point at Ferrari would be Charles Leclerc. Okay. So... Okay, let let's assume that something happens and one one of the Ferrari drivers needs to sit out. Charles Leclerc gets the the reserve drive in Ferrari and gets to be in there. Sauber still needs a driver. Maybe then you could possibly see Daniel Kvyat come in. You, but you maybe, but Sauber may have their own reserve driver. Well, you've also got Antonio Giovinazzi. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also Ferrari's a reserve and, and third driver for Ferrari. Because remember, been for a, a while. test and development driver, even on the simulator or in a car, is not a reserve driver, and those are two separate jobs. True. I mean, Susie Wolf was in that position and did not get the call up. Right. Um, and yeah, I think that impacted both teams when that happened. Mm -hmm. But now the reason I don't think Charles Leclerc has the inside track is just ferrari's history okay ferrari is not known for taking on a young inexperienced driver at the main at at the, the ferrari at the ferrari team itself they always want to go with a safe they always seem to go with a safe choice with a driver that at least has a couple of years experience in formula one before they bring them on so yeah, it's possible that Charles Leclerc may have a future with the big team. I think it's more likely that you see, oh, I don't know, maybe a Daniel Ricciardo or somebody like that make the move. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, there there's enough drivers who could who are who have contracts coming up next year that I don't think that Ferrari needs to basically step out of character to bring in Leclerc next year. It makes sense. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, a couple of years ago, we had like 70% of the grid all didn't have contracts. And we thought, oh, this is going to be the best silly season ever. And it was the most boring silly season ever. Yeah, and, and, and it until was Nico, largely Ferrari's fault. But Yeah, and until <laughs> Nico retired, we didn't get a silly season like we should have. Yeah. Um, honestly, I think a lot of what will hang on this silly season is going to be what Ferrari does. If Ferrari decides that they're cutting Kimi loose, I think that'll blow the doors open because I don't see Lewis going anywhere. No. So I think if Mercedes makes a decision on Valtteri, it's going to be late. That makes sense. Because here's the question. If you're Mercedes, who would you rather drive against, especially drive against in a Ferrari. Valtteri Bottas, Daniel Ricciardo, Sergio Perez, or Esteban Ocon. Mm. And I think all of those are candidates to move around this coming year. That's true. That's true. So remember how for several years – we had a prediction going that form that Force India was going to fold. Yes, and it wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. That they weren't going to make it. And then two years ago, they ended up in fourth. Mm -hmm. 
And then this year, they ended up in fourth. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out in Formula One that when you do have results like this, you make a lot of money. Do you? Yeah. So now, flush with funds, Force India is actually undergoing a major upgrade and renovation process on their campus and on the factory. Oh, what are they doing? So Force India, the way they've been is you go onto their campus and their operations are scattered th- across the campus in multiple buildings. So they're, going, they're working to upgrade so that they can consolidate everything into one building. And, it, you know, they don't have to have shuttle buses to get people around, things like that. <laughs> that would be nice. One building. But, I mean, can they hold on to fourth if they have one building? I mean, these are important <laughs> questions. So last year, there was the Global Fan Survey run by Motorsport Network. Mm-hmm. One of the things that came out of that was 69.4% of fans called for a return to competition between tire manufacturers. They wanted a tire war. Well, Mario Azzola was at the Autosport International show and says he doesn't think there'll be a return to a tire war. What he says, he says, it's a different situation. At the moment, we supply the same product to all teams, so we put all the teams on the same level in terms of tires. If you open competition, you increase the cost because you need to test. You will have top teams with a better product compared to the midfield or lower teams as you don't have any obligation to supply the same tires to everybody. Maybe with two or three tire manufacturers, you can have a couple of teams fighting at top, but the rest will be struggling for performance. With the tire, you can easily find half a second or more, so you generate a bigger delta between teams compared to now. Um, He says... There's plenty of reasons to be positive ahead of this year's campaign, though, and why we don't need to have a tire war. He says, the last championship was not bad. You had two teams, Mercedes and Ferrari, fighting. You had Red Bull at the end of the season to be strong. This year, I expect these three teams plus some other surprises. I'm sure Renault will be more competitive compared to last year, probably Force India, too. Hopefully, we'll have an interesting championship. But bottom line, he doesn't want a tire war, which, in a way, I could see. Understand There's why. a lot for them to, to, to risk there. I understand why they don't want to have a tire war. I mean, that makes sense. Now, in terms of changes to the regulations for next year. Oh, what are we We've got changes, not a lot of changes, but we've got changes to both the sporting and the technical regulations. So just wanted to touch on what we can look forward to for both of those. Um, for starters, on the sporting regulations, Again, a reminder that teams are limited to just three engines per season. I hate that rule. A lot of people hate that rule. Okay. To go along with that, there are supposed to be simpler grid penalties. So We're just going to start everybody at the back. I mean, that's the way this is going to work. Well, under the previous system, drivers changing multiple power unit elements could rack up multiple grid drops, often in excess of the number of cars at the event. Now, any driver who earns a grid penalty of 15 places or more will have to start from the back of the grid. If more than one driver receives such a penalty, they will be arranged at the back of the grid in the order in which they changed elements. Now, the FIA and Formula One group seem to think that this should mean less headaches for fans and those tasked with deciding the grid. The reality is, I think, when you, look, when you get right down to it, it's the same system. Yes. And you're still going to end up with the, well, okay, so 
this guy's starting at the back of the grid, but they change this part before these guys change that part. So they're going to stack here, and it's still going to be the same system. You know what I think they should do, personally? It's my favorite theory. If they get a grid penalty that would put them at the back of the grid, mm-hmm. so 15 grids, if you, if you qualified with pole mm-hmm. and you had a 15-grid penalty, that does not actually put you at the back of the grid. So let's just remember. Yeah. But a penalty that your qualifying position, less your penalty, would put you at 20 or higher. You start from the pits. A, start them from the pits. Just be done. And put them in order that their number would come. Take starting qualifying position, less penalties, whatever that order is. Be done. Well, based on how this is worded from Formula One, even if you end up on pole, if your grid penalty is more than 15 places, you're at the back. Correct. So, so that's period, a bigger than 15-place grid penalty. Yep. And that's where, that's going to be a problem, I think, in its own right, right there. Mm-hmm. But I like my system. Well... Where they think they are alleviating confusion is there. Where they insist that they're not bringing confusion, but everyone else says they are bringing confusion, is the last technical regulation is that now we're going to get a wider range of tire compounds. Yes. The rainbow colors. So we'll also have the new pink-marked hypersoft at one end and the orange-marked super hard at the other. It is... Just as the uh, Ultra Soft is the Snuggle Bear tire, the Super Hard tire will forever be known as the Rock Hard tire. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing is, you know, we used to say the, the Ultra Soft was the Snuggle Bear. We've now gone softer than that. So what are we at? The, the Super Plush? Yeah, I... <laughs> We're going to have to think about, like, what is the softest? See, and I'm afraid if we find the softest substance to describe the hyper soft as. Um, the jello tire. Yeah, it's the jello tire. I mean, then they're just going to make a hyper hyper soft. Or a, what is the insanity plaid? Yes. <laughs> like the movie. So the full range that you have to look forward to is the pink hypersoft tire, the purple ultra soft tire, the red super soft tire, the yellow soft tire, the white medium tire, the blue hard tire, the super hard orange tire, the green intermediate tire, and then figure this one out. The darker blue wet tire? <laughs> no, really. Yeah, I know. Uh- because it's always been the blue wet tire. Uh-huh. Um, okay, so last season, I don't believe we saw the hard tire appear at all. So no, what, and they're telling us we're not going to see the hard tire this year either. And we're probably not going to see the rock hard tire. Yeah. Not So we can just eliminate those. We likely probably won't see much of the medium tire. It's all going to be in the soft range. Uh, you know, I think there might be once or twice that you may see a medium tire. Um but I don't know. No, we're going to be playing in the soft tires. I mean, I think when you get to the point where the hardest compound that you're actually really wanting to run is the soft tire. 
yeah, and maybe super soft, ultra soft, and hyper soft are the ones that are like the speedier ones. I, I think we need to like redo our range. Yeah. So over on the technical roll side, again, not a whole lot of changes. So for starters, T-wings and shark fins are supposed to be gone next year. T-wings too? T-wings too. So the drivers will not get get good UHF reception on their steering wheels anymore. How darn. Because those aerials are going away. Um, the halos are coming. We are getting them. And then... Going back to what we discussed last week, the trick suspension um, of using suspension systems to improve the car's aerodynamic performance, that's supposed to be going away too. How they're going to figure that one out and how they're going to enforce that one, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But that is supposed to be going away too. Okay. So our last actual story before we get to Williams is – Again, like we mentioned, we had uh, Autosport International, lots of folks talking. Managing director for Powertrain at Cosworth, Bruce Wood, gave an interview over at Autosport talking about Cosworth's future in Formula One and whether or not they would return. Cosworth has a very storied history, even though they're not currently an engine builder, and 2012 was a horrible, horrible year for them. They've got a very long, very storied history with Formula One, and there's been a lot of speculation as to whether or not they're going to be returning. Mm -hmm. So what Bruce had to say, he said, first off, we'd love to be there. It's been reported quite widely that we've been heavily involved in the ongoing current dis discussions. Where we cited it from the beginning is that it's unlikely you will see a completely independent Cosworth on the if you build it, they will come basis. That's unlikely because the econ economics of that are hard to make work. We certainly hope that we might be there partnered with a small OEM that's willing to make what hopefully a new regulation will enable being a much smaller financial commitment to get into F1. His words. That's almost a Ron Dennis word. <laughs> I admit that. But basically he's saying they're hoping somebody will partner with them. Now, Autosport in publishing this article was doing their own prod because they put just above this with no caption, but they put just above that statement a picture of the Aston Martin logo on the Red Bull car. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he goes on to say that it's no secret that the level of technology currently in F1 is quite prohibitive, even to somebody like Cosworth with our background getting into it because there are so many elements that are absolutely cutting edge. The heat energy recovery would require tens of millions of investment. The rules as they are being proposed would certainly technically facilitate Cosworth coming back into it and will bring down the cost barrier to entry to the point where there's a lot more OEMs, or not necessarily car manufacturers, but other sponsors who see Formula One as something they can bring into their sorts of budgets. Interesting. Now, outside of Aston, I'm not sure who else would partner with Cosworth. All right. Yeah. We'll see. So that's all we've got on, on stories. So like you mentioned, uh, we watched the Williams movie. Now, this is not to be confused with Williams' A Different Kind of Life, which is 
uh, Ginny Williams' book about uh, taking care of Frank after the accident. And I don't mm-hmm. think there's a movie about that, but that shows up on Amazon quite a bit. That's you a book. That's yes. her book, isn't it? It, it is her book. Um, she sat down, and it's one of the things that was talked about in the movie, is that Ginny sat down without the rest of the family knowing with a writer and discussed and, and basically they wrote the book of her experience taking care of Frank. Um, and it's their, it's the story of their life. Yes. And, I mean, and it's the high points too. It's not just post-accident. Yeah. But it was her methodology of dealing with the grief. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Williams movie is a documentary. It's really about Frank, his team, the way he came up, um, and a lot of Claire speaking. Um, the some there's some recordings from the recording pieces of Jenny's uh, book writing sessions. Yeah, I mean, it, it, where the focus primarily is is from the time um, from Frank getting started all the way up to just after his accident. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't really go into any of the later years and struggles that the team has had, uh, the impact of Ayrton Senna's death on Frank and the team, although it does talk a little, and this is something that I didn't know, it talks a little bit about... Um, the the role of women in the team itself, particularly around um, making Claire the deputy team principal, and the decision that was made to do that and bypass Claire or, or bypass Frank's son, and the tension that has caused, and the friction, and the fact that those two now don't talk to each other at all. They do not speak. They do not have a relationship. And Claire, the only thing Claire said about that specifically was um, that the tension is around, I am both a daughter and not the, I'm not the oldest and I'm not a son. And that was the issue. Yeah. Now, um, actually, I don't know where Jane, because he had two sons, Jonathan and Jamie, and I think it's Jonathan who's still with the team, and Jonathan thought that he was going to get the role to step in, and instead it went to Claire. Um, Jonathan is working, still working with the team and for the team. He runs all of their historic operations and the archiving, um, the every single vehicle that Williams has they maintain a large supply of spare parts for because they can run all of them. He's in charge of that entire operation and the history of the organization. That's pretty cool if you think about it. It it actually is a really cool job, but there was a comment made as as we were introduced to him of, you know, is, is Claire aware of what this is and what this entails and Jonathan or says, did she ever come to the facility is what the question was and he said that she didn't even know existed yeah um yeah so there's tensions there but there was a I will say this the movie was absolutely not apologetic about ripping back the curtain there are some things about Frank Williams about his his role as husband and father that are quite frankly a little upsetting um he wasn't one i mean let's just be no, honest he, he he wasn't um the the image 
And th- there was that. There was also the other thing that really struck me was the discussions of what Frank was like before the accident. Mm-hmm. It was Claire talking about in the picture that they showed of the fact that, you know, before the accident, it w- wasn't common to see Frank's flinging tires around and, and wheels around the garage and that he was this avid runner and everywhere they went, every track they went to, he would, I mean, long before fitness was, was anything that anybody cared about, he was out there running to tracks and constantly doing that stuff. And what led to the accident was he was trying to rush back to England so that he could go run in a race. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's kind of back up for a second. Frank comes from nothing. Let's mm-hmm. just, I mean, bare bones. The man came from nothing. Um, and tinkered and tinkered and tinkered. He had an incredible um, ability to take something old, do a little bit to it and make it better. And in fact, he would often in the early days take chassis repaint them (laughs) and then sell them back to the same team like they were completely new chassis they sold the same chassis to the same team three times yeah um but he, he was that kind of a guy um and the definition of self made but in jenny's descriptions of him if there was a weekend he was at a track he would he was not around the family circuit claire even said that there was a a week a year that or a week or two that they took a holiday a family holiday and frank never went yeah and they all thought it was better for it because he he couldn't not be at the track that was where he wanted to be um and it wasn't with the family and it wasn't with jenny um even though from the moment jenny and frank met it was an absolute love affair. It was, but they only touched on it a little bit of Ginny and her role and how she saw and, and, and her feelings about motorsport. Mm-hmm. Um, Claire seemed to give the impression towards the end that Ginny actually did like motorsport and, and wanted to be involved but because of the culture and of both the team and frank and just motorsport in general she wasn't involved and didn't do stuff that being said and i've got to call this picture out because it is absolutely fantastic it unfortunately it's a picture that was taken after frank's accident uh in 1986 when the team still won the constructors championship Ginny accepted the trophy, the constructor's trophy for the team. Um, I think it was at Silverstone off the top of my head, but there is it, it is an incredible shot of Ginny holding up the trophy up on the podium, and it was one of the first times, if not the first time, that A, a woman was called up to, to receive the trophy, and B, I think that, that anybody had been called up to receive a constructor's trophy on the podium. And they brought Ginny up, and the look on her face holding the trophy up is just, it. I, I can't describe it, but it, it's, it was impressive. Was she happy? 
Yes. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it it, 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 it it was this pride. It was, I mean, it radiated everything that was going on. I was just trying to say this is this is radio. Yeah, Nobody's I know. looking at the picture but you. So let's let's go I with, I can't describe it. You got to get at least the emotion. Um, But there was a lot, and like I said, the whole movie really pulled back the curtain. There mm-hmm. didn't feel like, if they pushed stuff to the side, I don't want to know what that was. <laughs> it was that seemingly very open and honest. And Claire was very, very honest about the presence of her father in her day-to-day life growing up, the presence of her father after the accident, um, the depression that happened. I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking about a fairly young, vital man who is now confined to a wheelchair. He is a quadriplegic. Tetraplegic. Tetraplegic. From the shoulders down, yeah. he's paralyzed. Um, he he doesn't have control of his hands, but he has figured out how to move his arms. Right, because he can move his shoulders. He can move his shoulders, so he's figured out he, he can move the wheelchair. He can't grasp it. Um, he's got the, the phone that he uses to dial on. One of the drivers gave him, but it's specifically made so that he can dial it mm-hmm. because he doesn't want somebody doing that stuff for him. Right, and I think that that's, that has a lot when you see the contrast of the before and after of the accident i mean there's a photo in the series of frank holding two wheel hubs standing tall holding two wheel tubs his biceps are just bulging (laughs) um he and you know how heavy those things are and he's just holding them and throwing them around and then you get to this older man stuck in a wheelchair and the only way he can move it forward, I mean, they redes- they actually use some of William's design technology to help him design a wheelchair. Yeah. But they've designed it in such a way that he can basically lay his hands on pegs and, and use it. his shoulders to push. Yeah. Um, so that he has some freedom, but he just does not have freedom. And um, there was a depression with that. There's depression around Jenny's role. Um, and then there's the... The controversy within the family. Um, I mean, that's just, it's just rough. It's rough all the way around. The, there was also, there was some interesting insight into some of the drivers that, that Frank has had to deal with through the years. Mm-hmm. And, and and how, as as a team and as a family, they used to deal with the drivers and handle the drivers. Frank was known, especially with his new drivers and his young drivers who were getting started out, he'd put them up in a house. All right wouldn't necessarily tell the kids anything about it. Well, they'd come home after the kids were in bed. Yeah. Who was the driver that so Claire and her brother got up? That's and- that's where I was going. Claire and her brother get up, and they head downstairs one morning, and there's this stranger with a mustache uh, you know, coming out of the bathroom. And, hey, how's it going? And, and they go running up to their parents because there's a stranger in the house. Oh, no, that's Dad's new driver, Nigel Mansell. Yeah. <laughs> But also the, the um, talk about the dynamics between the various drivers and how the team handled it. You know, every, especially if you watch the British coverage today and, and the way they talk and the way they revere Nigel Mansell. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they call him our man Nige and all of that stuff. But in the movie, they're like, you know, off track, he was really kind of an ass. Yeah. <laughs> we hated dealing with him. He, he was a pain to deal with. 
and yeah. I, so all of this hoo-ha around this movie, we highly recommend that you watch it. It's available on Netflix. On you Netflix. You can stream it off of Netflix. It, it's not over on Amazon Prime Video, uh, but Net- Netflix has it. So we highly recommend it. Um, we actually got a chance to watch it on our flight out to Barcelona on our trip. And the two of us both watched it. And what you were, because it was a uh, on-demand type mm-hmm. thing, you were, what, about 15 minutes ahead of me? Yeah. And I would pause it and look over at you and go, no. And you're like <laughs> nodding. <laughs> and Yeah. <laughs> and just wait. So there's a lot of those moments in this movie. Yeah, some great insight into how the team got started. Um, Frank losing the team and having to start over from scratch uh, due to some bad decisions that he made. Uh, Also just, again, the telling of the accident and what happened and how everybody dealt with it and responded to it and how the team carried on and and struggled to carry on Mm -hmm. around him. Um, combined with you know the empire that, that Frank and Patrick had were building at the time and the direction that it went. I do wish they had gone a little bit deeper because you know one of the things that happened after, in, in the wake of Ayrton Senna's death is that Frank was charged with manslaughter by the Italian authorities. Now the charges were dropped, but it would have been really interesting to see, again, how that affected Frank and the team. And we know there was a psychological impact when, when Ayrton was lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I didn't even know that Jenny had written a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and Frank has never read it. Frank has never read it. Claire asked him in the movie towards the end, Claire asked him, because Claire read, I guess, a section of it to Frank um, and said, don't you ever want to read this? And he said, nope. And apparently, and I will say this piece, the thing that I really learned about Frank Williams is man is not emotional. Yeah. It's a very fact-based world with Frank, Um, which does make me kind of want to pick his brain about what happened after Aaron. Because for a man that was so, well, this is just the way it is. And that's the way he seemed to approach the fact that Jenny had written this book. And I'll, well, that's the way she had to deal with it. You know, this week's cover art will be Ginny Williams with the trophy. Okay. So that you can describe the undescribable? Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. On that note. Um, again, New Year, that reminder. Watch the movie. Let us know what your thoughts are. We haven't heard from anybody as to uh, prospective sponsors for McLaren. We want to know what you guys think. I know. Um, they have three secret sponsors. Who are they? Who do you think they are? And, you know, the reminder, get, help us get the word out. We know mm-hmm. you're listening. Share with the rest of the world our show. Put, put us up, Share us in, in your Facebook feeds. You know, tell everybody that you are listening to the finest podcast on the Internet that we record it is the finest one that we record mm-hmm. um it is also the independent motorsport podcast yes um so just remember these are key things to remember and, and share. always has been independent yes and on that note we'll call it a show
They are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay. Whew.